This week's episode is brought to you in part by FNX Fit, a fitness supplements brand that can get you hooked up with all of your pre, post, during workout needs as well as other nutritional supplements. Use checkout code CARLPOOLING at fnxfit.com to get 15% off your order. Christmas, audience. Bah humbug, and a happy new year. Welcome to the final Carl pooling of the year. Uh, what a year it has been. Hunter, there were ups, there were, well, uh, no, there was just downs. I thought there were ups. Oh. I think there were actually just downs. Just a whole lot of downs. Just a big down year. But you know what, that means yeah. that the, the ascendancy of 2021 has... Won't happen. Right. Because we've <laughs> doomed ourselves to an eternal suffering. You know what? Um, we've enjoyed the holidays. What a uh, relaxing time of year. Seeing family and friends, or not, depending on whether or not you um, believe in COVID. That's half of a joke. <laughs> so everybody, half relax for me. Gavin um, yeah, Newsom, I hugged my mother. He would Stop be me, extremely bro. upset to hear that. Um, I know. I think a lot of these these elites never see their families, and their families probably resent them and hate them, except for the elites in Congress because they never work. So I don't know how to rectify those two thoughts in my head. But I think that everyone holds them in such utter contempt that they're just mad that other people have friends, and so they want to keep us from seeing each other. Look. That makes sense. It's a theory. Makes perfect sense. It's a theory. <laughs> so welcome to Carpooling. It's a show about everything that will get you fired from your job. Uh, listen on full full volume at, at your office, at the desk. Um, hold on, that's not going to be relevant in 2020. Um, offices mm, were yeah. buildings where people used to go to do work. Now, most work is done only through the power of the internet, which of course was invented by um, climate change. Al Gore? Oh, sure, oh, that. <laughs> um, necessity is the mother of invention. And, right. Uh, and how... A desk Sorry. was actually a, a flat surface upon which to perform the work. And there was collections of them in offices. You could call an office a desk bank. Um, anyway, I hope <laughs> I've made that real for everyone. I know it's hard to remember yeah. some of your ancient American history. So uh, one thing we like to do at the start of the show, this this is a show we're going to, it's it's not as serious, um, the the damnation of Ossoff still hangs over us like a gloomy, pathetic, soy-laden specter. But this episode, instead of getting too political, we're going to talk mostly about uh, philosophy and some of the some of the oldest philosophy that there is. Hunter, maybe the oldest Western philosophy that exists in a lot of ways. Yeah, at least where we could point back and say, like, if it wasn't the start, we treat it that way for all intents and purposes, right? right. Like, if you want to know what Western philosophy is about, your teacher's probably going to go, all right, well, Socrates is where we'll start. Right. Um, and that was just a little teaser for later, because Jeez. first we're going to do something undeniably useless, and that is roadkill. Yeah. We like to take a story ripped straight from the headlines and uh, lampoon it, because... You don't have to worry about roadkill. 
It's already dead when you got there. Unless... Don't worry about roadkill. Roadkill worries about you. Doesn't work. It doesn't. doesn't work. It's not funny. Unless you're making the roadkill. Oh, no. Which? Oh, I do every week. Let's go. So, uh, this is a great one. Uh, this is an amazing tweet, brother. Uh, this is Jen Bokoff or Bokoff. Let's Not start sure. right there. A very unfortunate name. Yeah. Hunter, um, I'm going to cut you off right there. Today I watched okay. the live action Pinocchio movie. Oh, did you? Yeah. Don't bother. Uh, okay. You know what? In a lot of ways, I liked a lot of things about it. The cinematography and colors are absolutely gorgeous. And of course, it keeps all of the incredibly relevant uh, metaphysical, uh, how would you say, archetypal elements from the original Pinocchio story, which are really great. And so there was cool. a couple of cool things to analyze there. One of my favorite scenes is when he's in the, uh, he's being judged and charged by the ape prosecutor. And he realizes that he has to admit he's guilty to go free. So there's a bunch of lovely things in it like that. Um, there are also cool. eight midgets in it. And I'm. it's not that they made the movie bad, but they were supposed to be the puppets. And it didn't track. It just looked like unfortunate oh. like midgets with psoriasis. Also, oh. Jiminy Cricket oh. was also played by a midget. And, oh. and, of course, he's just called the talking cricket. And... Hunter, Why didn't they CGI that? When I first saw the cricket, my only assumption was that I was about to be hit with a special beam cannon. And what I mean by that <laughs> is he looked exactly reminiscent of a stout Namekian. If you don't know okay. what Dragon Ball Z is, skip ahead two minutes. But tru- truly, the second time he showed up in the movie, I was thoroughly convinced that we were going to be... <laughs> Nail, don't fetch his coat. That we were going to be boarded by Frieza and have our entire planet destroyed. He truly oh, was just cool. a just a midget painted green with antennae coming out from just above his eyes. Did they not learn with Will Smith? Playing Genie? Yeah. That you can't just paint You can't just paint a, a man and expect it to be okay. Will Smith's not a midget though, Hunter. Yeah. So they I hadn't tried this before. Oh. They were breaking new ground. Are, Christopher, aren't midgets people too? I don't understand the question. Okay. Okay. Anyhow, um, so, short people got no reason to live. Obviously, that's not true. Um, yeah. But what are we supposed I to call think, midgets now? Little people? Dwarves? I don't, I don't know. What's, the is staturally bad? challenged? I, I, I don't know. I'm sure midget offends I, somebody. I'm sure, but I'm sure a short person does too, and I'm sure like all of them do. So just give up and wait for 2021 and its sweet release. Yeah. Uh, Voldemort no makes hope. a reprisal, reprisal as a tuna fish in the belly of the whale. Um, Vol- oh, okay. And not that well, it's the same actor or related in any way. It just very disturbingly lacks a nose. Oh. And all I could think was okay. that Pinocchio was about to destroy the eight Horcrux and become the true heir of the Sword of Gryffindor. I Were am now talking Horcruxes? about things I know nothing about. Hunter, I don't know. Okay. I'm pretty sure there were seven because, I mean, come on. Well, JK yeah, Rowling. then, then she, the tuna fish would numbers. be the eighth. 
Oh, okay. Finish it off. I get it. Yeah. Oh, we missed one. Finish the drill. Finish the got it. Finish okay, the, cool. the game. Uh, Pinocchio must destroy one deep. Okay. In the Atlantic Ocean. Right. So Jin Bokov or Bokov, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. I can't. I'm can't. I don't know because I. It doesn't. She didn't provide a pronunciation guide with her name. Tweets this little gem. This is your annual reminder that not everyone celebrates Christmas. Harks an alarm. Uh, the default to Merry Christmas as a normal greeting is also white supremacy culture at work. If someone celebrates, by all means, but so many people don't. Um, Hunter, I know that her I name guess, didn't come with a pronunciation guide, but can I just yeah. ask, what are her pronouns? Because I absolutely know they're in her <laughs> Twitter bio. So th- this brings us to a new segment of Roadkill. When we read a tweet from one of our friends, we'll also include the Twitter bio, uh, which, well done, Chris. You've you've guessed ahead. Uh, this is a de- development director at Disability Rights Fund. She's a game lover, connector, traveler, laughs readily, values sincerity, dislikes feathers, toughs, thoughts equal mine, which doesn't make any sense. She, her. Great. Well... What can we say? Um, one, we don't need an annual reminder. We know that there's miserable, cretinous, lecherous losers in the world without you uh-huh. uh, reminding us. In fact, your entire profile stands as testament to it. So don't uh, feel obligated to proceed with your self-righteous uh, reminder text. We will, we will certainly scan across your profile and instantly grok <laughs> The required information. Second, there's no reason to be as unhappy as you are to be such what one might call a humbug simply because no one wants you at parties. Because anybody who has to say, remember that some people don't celebrate Christmas, certainly isn't a hit at said holiday festivities. So you can leave your ire and leave us to our mirth, you stereotypical scrooge yeah but christopher you forgot she laughs readily so i don't think like you're really (laughs) treating her in the proper like love and joy that she brings to fellow man i think you're putting a lot of bias onto that saying self-describing yourself as someone who laughs readily is the same as trying to convince people to agree with you that you have a good sense of humor if you're doing it you don't I just if you if you're a fun person, let other people say it for you. If you need it in your Twitter bio, well, yeah. Ugh, yuck. I wonder what color is her thing. hair. Uh, I know it's blonde? not. Yeah, blonde. I knew it was one of the primary colors because she has she/her, which, you know, if you're if you're wild enough to dye your hair for political gain, which is really what these people are doing at this point then you're going to throw they in there. Because if you go she, they, she, they is just the most vanilla way of saying that I am obviously a girl, but also I'm special. But special by fiat in the same way that that saying you laugh readily makes you special by fiat. I think I'm going to make my preferred pronouns, it's a me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a me, Hunter. (laughs) It's a me, Hunter. Yeah, that'd be perfect. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah, it is really bad. My preferred pronouns are nope, not real. Just that in a little bracket. That 
that's pretty good. Well, is uh, there anything else to yeah. say to her other than uh, I know that Christmas has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, but I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. So God bless it. Uh, yeah, so long and thanks for all the fish. It's been great, Jen, and <laughs> goodbye. And oh, Well, you know what, Hunter? Before we let her go, and by oh, let her okay. go, I mean from go. a small height at the end of a wooden structure over oh, the okay. surface of the water, we will give Jen the Long Walk Off a Short Pier Award for this week. A Merry Christmas Way to go, Jen. Long Walk Off a Short Pier um, you and we'll we'll set we'll set it to walking in a winter wonderland, um, and the I winter wonderland will day. be a, a thirty degree sea foam. So, there we have it. Well, she gets what she wants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one's going to be celebrating in there, Jen. I think you and your eggshell skull will be just fine. I saw a, a lovely tweet thread from a um, an Islamic uh, man the other day on Twitter, and he was talking about how since he couldn't go home for the holidays, he was celebrating Christmas for the first time, and he was just enamored with all the aspects and pointing out inconsistencies and incongruities and idiosyncrasies that we would never see as people who grew up in the milieu. And he's like, you dedicate three months out of the year to working on Christmas, like buying presents and and getting decorations and baking it. He's like... Your tenacity, there's nothing, there's no holiday that we pursue with as much fervor as Americans pursue Christmas, which I thought was pretty funny. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, we basically work like overtime so we can like relax for two weeks. Like that's the whole idea behind Christmas almost is like, you know, it's our two weeks off. Everybody takes it. And it's, it's one of the things I do think that is, makes it such a wonderful cultural touchstone which is why I'm so annoyed by people like Jen. Because the other thing that he elocuted, which I thought was quite erudite, was that you don't have to be a religious observer to celebrate Christmas. Now, I know you and I see Christmas as a religious tradition, but other people don't. And also, I hold no animosity for those people who don't. I think that there are... It's important to have cultural connection with people despite religious disagreement. Uh, That's good for... You know, um, it's it's more good fences, right? Uh, we can right. disagree about the the politics and of religion or religion itself. However, we can still enjoy a holiday together. I think it's a wonderful tradition. It's one of the last ones that truly seems ubiquitous in America. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, and to be to give the holiday its due, um, all of the Christmas traditional myths have nothing to do with Christianity. Sure. Zero zilch nada. It's almost like Christmas has the son of God's birth stapled onto it. Right. Right. Which is exactly how it happened. So it's like you can celebrate and it's weird because it's in the name, but you can celebrate Christmas without the Christ, you know, if that sort of makes sense. Sure. Now that's not the point. And that's kind of what we all say and do, but like, you know, it, it's a it, it's it's American as apple pie. Right. You know what I mean? And it doesn't require um, it doesn't require you to buy in hook, line and sinker to white supremacy culture to celebrate it. So and not <laughs> that Christianity is that at all. But right. anyway, well, I will say that's that is true. You know, there's Saturnalia, which then got adopted as Christmas. But then a bunch of our traditions that we hold today, like Santa Claus is St. Nick. You know, there's like there is a Christian 
historical tradition Completely there. Agree. Just like now we have gay marriage, but marriage was started by the Catholic Church. Um, wait a nice. minute. They're pretty gay. All right. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, maybe that maybe that homily falls apart under tighter scrutiny. Um, yeah. At any rate, Hunter, let's uh, dismiss the festivities momentarily as we discuss Socrates. And specifically Socrates. today, we're going to talk about the Socratic method. Now, you may be asking, what is the Socratic method? And Hunter is going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the first ways we developed as a, I guess in Western thought, a way to, di a way to divine truth, if you will. Um, it's one of our first ways to figure something out. And um, definitionally, the way this works is, someone is asked to put forward a definition of whatever is in the topic of discussion uh, that then is responded to by a question of that definition that pushes back against that idea or thought or whatever it is. And then the person who put forward the definition adjusts their definition or puts forward a argument that shows that, you know, the question isn't fair or doesn't add up correctly or doesn't make sense to the definition. And it continues this way until everyone is in agreement with what is being discussed. Right. Um, yeah. And so basically it's this uh, definition question, definition question, definition question, this little call and response until you get to somewhere that is what we would consider true. Right. And a couple just ancillary points about it. Although it is, and I think this is actually notable. I, I don't see this as necessarily a weakness of the Socratic method. I see it as a as a revelation about the way that thinking works. Is that it typically doesn't find truth necessarily. Usually, what it tends to is to eliminate possibilities. You could think sure. of it as Thomas Edison's light bulb. Um, and that is often the way that we think. I mean, the way that human understanding and knowledge has progressed throughout our cultural and psychological and scientific revolutions is that we continue to eliminate things that we are able to prove are untrue. And now, right. the Socratic method differs from the scientific method in several ways. One of them is that it exists solely as a dialectic. So this is to mean that it's a dialogue, but not just a dialogue, that it's a dialogue that includes logic and rhetoric spoken to um, be put forth. If you've ever sat in a, a school classroom, you've probably engaged in a dialectic. You've almost certainly engaged in the Socratic method, even if it's just uh, a discussion. Maybe you're discussing a piece of writing and a teacher is asking you, you know, why do you think this character did that? That could be an example of a element of the Socratic method where the educator and in that, this case your teacher although originally Socrates proceeds to get his point across by having you stumble upon the realization yourself or contradicting your original statement so um, that's that's a sliver of it so everyone is at least in some way uh, familiar with the method right whether you know it or not sort of thing. Right. Like just because you didn't put the stamp on there. Uh, if, if you've ever given a definition for something and somebody's raised their hand, you go, Oh, that's a good point. And let me explain further. 
right? You've engaged in the Socratic method. Um, So, and it's a powerful way to think through the world. It's definitely not perfect. And if you've read anything by Socrates, you would know that because the the guy liked to get around, he had some pretty crazy ideas. Uh, Mainly the fact that violins proved eternal life. Uh, So, you know, of course, we all know that. So... So, Hunter, do I understand you correctly that you're saying that violins don't prove eternal life? I, I don't know. I'm not sure you can actually do that is what I'm trying to say, Chris. I was trying to, I was trying to bully you into it. You know, one yeah. way that I engage with the Socratic method for comedy is in what I call a chain zinger. Uh, okay. Which is where I say, I make, but I make you Socrates in it, where I go, oh, Hunter, do you have any Advil? Uh... No, I don't have any Advil. Um, I mean, yes, I do have Advil. Whichever one lets the keep going. Do you, can I can I have some? Of course you can. Cuz I've got, you know, I've got I need Advil. What do you need Advil for? Um, for carrying this podcast on my back. It makes me pretty sore. See what I just <laughs> did is I made Hunter ask me the question, right? So it's a little Socratic. Nice. That's just a that's free. I like the zing at the end. Yeah, that's see, nice. But you start out, and you could even go further back. You could be like, "Hey, Hunter, can I take some?" And then he'd be like, "Take some what?" And you're like, "Well, some Advil." Well, why? <laughs> you know, you could you can yeah. do it your own way, but you you make the other person Socrates. It's really fun. Love it. Um, so Hunter, maybe we break it down like this. Well, first off, let's just lay this up. Why are we telling you this? Well. One, this will be a lighter little Christmas treat for everyone, hopefully. But also because, and we've discussed this before on the show, it's a really good way to think. And not that you have to follow the Socratic method in itself, but there are elements to it that you should certainly adopt. And we've discussed before on the show that it's terribly hard to actually think, like by yourself. A lot of people think through dialogue. You can learn to think by having a dialogue with yourself. And one of the ways that you can have a dialogue with yourself is by following some of the steps in the Socratic method. So, and we've discussed before, I I think I've said colloquially, I came up with this before I had read Socrates and I was much uh, more ill-informed than his method. However, it went something like this. If I have an idea, what I want to do next is put every, uh, every formal and informal intellectual pry bar I can underneath that idea and see if I can upend it, see if I can rip out its foundation. And if I can, then I dismiss the idea or refine it. If I can't, then I dismiss, then I can't, then I integrate it so long as I can't perform that task. And sometimes you perform that test by having someone else uproot it for you, right? But that's, it's an example of a way to ensure consistency within your ideas and within your beliefs so if you haven't formally thought through that process i think it's useful for people to do that to become a stronger thinker no matter what they believe so anyway that's why we're telling you yeah i think there's there's a lot of things that you know you should be doing in your life that you probably don't have practical ways to accomplish right um that can be from cleaning up your room that can be from you know having a conversation with your mother that doesn't end and you yelling at each other. Right. And you may just feel kind of hopeless in a bunch of different things. One of those should be formal thought. Right. Sure. Um, and if you need a place to start, the Socratic method is in a bad place. In fact, you know, as far as thinking by yourself or thinking, um, I would say without like objective measurements or without revealed truth, it's probably the best you got. 
you know, it's probably the only way that we actually have a way of getting somewhere. Um, so yeah, I think it's really important. I also think it's one of those things that once you've, once you've mastered it, um, it, it becomes really, really powerful. Um, it's something that you can learn to do with other people really well, uh, as long as you've got people that will have a conversation with you, but you'll surprise yourself how similar a conversation is to this already without putting necessarily the, the diagram onto it. It just falls into that category, but also like Christopher's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But also you can learn to do it with yourself pretty quickly. And if you ever talk to yourself, which I do a lot of and just have since I was a little baby boy, um, you'll find that you talk to yourself this way too. Go ahead. Absolutely. I'll just say it's very reminiscent to me because it relies on only logical construction Mm -hmm. and spoken word. It is very reminiscent to me of the type of um, Einsteinian thought experiments you know, where you can conduct an experiment solely within the six inches between your ears. I really like that about it. It's an elegant format for that reason. Another thing that I love about it is that it, it maybe not in the first step, but in the subsequent steps to introducing the Socratic method, it actually, it actually preferences listening and That's something that we don't do enough of. And it's good to remember sometimes during conversation. So I, Hunter, I want to talk about the steps and the stages of the way that Socrates employed the method. But maybe before that, I want to, I want to talk about where Socrates first used the method. Of course, it was revealed to us through Plato's writings, but, and, and you're, you're a lot more knowledgeable about those writings. So maybe I'll start by giving a brief history of where, it originated, at least in his mind, as captured by Plato. And then you can go mm-hmm. into some of the ways that he used it. We can go through the structure of it and then talk about maybe uh, maybe some applications, maybe some, some conclusions. How's that sound to you? Sure. That oh. sounds great. All right. So let's talk about the genesis and jump in wherever you have an interesting detail here. I think you're much better read on the subject than I am. So there was a guy, and his name I don't know. Um it was that's a bad start. It's a terrible start. We're gonna call him <laughs> Mark. You might know his name. Mark. It's like Chernoff Cher Cherian or something like that. Cherian Cher So Terezo goes to the Oracle at Delphi and he asks the Oracle at Delphi ah, a question. No, I don't know this name, but go ahead. It's like Cher Cheron, something like this. He asks the Oracle at Delphi a question. He says, Is there any man in Greece that is wiser than Socrates? And the Oracle at Delphi replies, No, there's none wiser than Socrates. And this information was relayed to Socrates and it troubled him because he said, I am, you know, kind of a jerk. And here I'm surrounded by great poets and great architects and writers and all of these brilliant individuals, pious people, and mm-hmm. yet how could it be that there were none that are wiser than I? And so Socrates set out to disprove the oracle at Delphi by engaging in a dialectic with these individuals. And so he talked to um, religious folks, and, and, and you know, of course religion then was ancient Greek religion, and he... Zeus... Yeah, he would talk to different individuals and start this dialectic with them, and he would use the Socratic method. It's really the first time that we saw it. So, for instance, he's talking to a austere religious scholar slash prophet about what is holiness 
or godliness mm-hmm. and what is ungodliness. Mm-hmm. And the scholar tells him, well, the things that the gods like are holiness and the things that the gods like are unholiness. And then Socrates asks him, well, don't the gods disagree? Do we agree that sometimes the gods disagree? Of course, he said yes, if you know anything about Greek uh, Greek polytheism. Myth? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And And... Socrates goes, okay, well, why do they disagree? And so they had a discussion about, you know, you can't disagree about things with objective measurement, but maybe you could disagree about things that are uh, subjectively valued, like right and wrong or worthwhile and not worthwhile. And so he says, so the gods disagree about these things. So some gods might like a certain object or a certain action, and other gods might hate it, and thereby... Some gods like and some gods hate the same object. Uh, different gods hate and like the same element. And so, therefore, you can't simply say that that the gods, that, whole, that godliness is simply something that the gods like. Because then an object could be simultaneously godly and ungodly or holy and unholy. And, of course, this falls apart logically, right? It's a definition error. They can't be both right. at the same time. And therefore, he disrupted the hypothesis that the definition of godliness and ungodliness were things that the gods like and hate, respectively. So during the... And that's just one example of him employing the Socratic method. And what he learned from that process, what the conclusion that he reached, was that he actually was the wisest man in Greece, not because he knew more than other people, but because he knew only one thing more. It was that, that he didn't know anything. Yes. Others found that they had not, or or purported that they had knowledge that Socrates was able to prove that they didn't have. And Socrates had a certain amount of almost ironic humility that he didn't know things, that he was curious but not knowledgeable. So that's where we first see the Socratic method being employed. And of course, we get that through the dialogues, which were written by Plato. Yeah, no, that's all that's all good. Um a lot of that you you see that's actually one of the reasons why i think socrates gets the following that he does and what he actually teaches a bunch of the younger kids and or younger the youth in athens is essentially this idea that hey you know i don't know anything and neither do the people around you and i can prove it by sitting here and asking you questions and to the youth that was like a really attractive idea uh, it wasn't necessarily you don't get the idea that he's leading a rebellion in his writings um, or anything like that. It's just, he's exploring these ideas and um, creating this space of like, you know, showing people what wisdom is essentially Uh, and kind of for their day a little bit too. And to kind of, and I don't know if this is where you want to go next, but this is kind of one of the things that puts him on trial essentially is the fact that he is basically, He's accused of doing a couple of different things, if I remember correctly. Uh, one is for corrupting the youth. One is for classic crime, you know, and classic crime. Uh, and the other is for essentially going against the gods. Um, right. So those are two really big deals. Um, really, what he's on trial for is pissing everybody off. Right. Because what he's been doing is he's been going around town and saying hey, you don't know anything, right? And the guys are being, oh, no, I know things. And he goes, oh, well, great. Well, shower me with wisdom. Tell me about this. And they'd be like, well, blah, 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 blah. And then he'd ask a good question, and then he would just drive these people to the point of infuriation. And so 
he's on trial not necessarily because um, he's done something grotesque. He's on trial because he's made everyone there just furious that they're not as clever as they thought they were. Right. Right. And they are their lives are not put together as well as they would like. And so the whole trial reads more like a, hey, get out of town, you know, sort of yeah. to Socrates. And Socrates just basically says, I can't. Um, it's another part of his uh, makeup. Um, Socrates had what he claimed was a daemon. And the daemon uh, sounds really scary if you know what a demon is, but it was really something more akin to his conscience. And he basically said his conscience always or his daemon always told him what not to do. And so whenever he said, I'm going to do X, it would kind of say back to him, no, you're not, or you can't do that. And so no matter what happened, Socrates would always obey that voice, essentially. Um, Funny enough, I feel like my conscience works in a similar way. Um, Typically, I don't ask a question to my conscience and get this answer of, I don't ask open-ended questions to my conscience and get answers. Right. You know what I mean? I have to ask more specific questions, and then I typically get something that is like, oh, that's not, I can go ahead with that. There's no second thought about that. Okay, well, then this must be the right thing to do. Um, And so he actually stands on trial, and he goes through with it. And this is kind of the thing I think that's just so hysterical about this. And I I can go a little bit too long about the the history here. Um, But Socrates, in trials like this, um, not only did Socrates show up and get put on trial, but he gets, he, he is condemned of guilty for his crimes and when you're on trial you actually get to um in ancient greece or at least in athens you got to put forward your punishment right you got to suggest your own your own punishment yes yes and so what so 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 of course socrates is not gonna (laughs) let that slip past him for a minute and so he says well you could exile me and he said that really won't work because i'll just go to the next town and piss them all off too and he says, um, you could put me to death, I guess, but that really won't solve your problem. And so what Socrates suggests to them is that they feed him on the public dime for the rest of his life. Because what he's provided to the town is the ennoblement of them, showing them how unwise they truly are and giving them something worthwhile. He uses this description of um, he is the gadfly of Athens. And Athens is a sleeping horse. And what he's being used there to do is to bite the horse in order to wake it up and have it live out its true calling, essentially. And so that's how Socrates sees himself. Big um, it doesn't go and brass, Hunter. Go. Big and brass. Yeah. What? Big <laughs> and brass. <laughs> You've been found yeah. guilty of making me very angry. What should be your punishment? Mutton. <laughs> Mutton. All that I'd like. <laughs> It's a, yeah, it's a bold exactly. move. It's a really bold move. Um, it doesn't go well. They give him a bottle of hemlock and say, turn it up at your earliest convenience. Um, so he gets essentially the death penalty. Um, but to Socrates, that was, he faces his death, not with timidity, but with, um, what's the best way to put it? With calmed assuredness that what he was living for mattered. You know, and it's something that not all of us necessarily get in our lifetime. Um, and so you ha- you ha- you come away from it, I think, despite some of the crazy thoughts that Socrates had, such as violins prove eternal life or disprove eternal life. It's a complicated argument. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so um, but you get this idea that 
whether he understood everything or not, Socrates found meaning in standing up for what he thought to be true. Right. Right. And he got there in part by this method. Well, and you, you um, can so, see what he believes about himself. He believes, uh, right. I love the, the observation of him being a gadfly, right? He saw himself as a very small, inconsequential catalyst, but through that, he could start up one horsepower, uh, which was Athens, right? So he, right. he, it makes sense that somebody who had a certain amount of um, charming ash holishness mm-hmm. coupled coupled with an intellectual humility that allowed him to target a purpose and resign himself to it. I think that he's an interesting character for that reason. And I learned a lot yeah. through what you were just saying. I don't know quite about as much about him as maybe I should. That's pretty cool. You know, two things came to my mind while you were talking there, Hunter, that kind of, that illustrate the Socratic method. I think there are things that others have said that that fill it out or some axioms that we derive from it. One is from Jordan Peterson, of course, because it's Carl Pooling. Who? Uh, exactly. When, okay. when Jordan Peterson <laughs> says, behave like the person that you're talking to or listening to, knows something that you should learn or knows something that you don't know. That's crucial in the Socratic method. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you have to actually listen to the party that you're talking to. And to to your point, he started out truly trying to learn from them. Uh, we'll, We'll get into the maybe clever way that he did that here in a minute. But he had decent intentions, and it was through that intention that he realized he had his a job to do. Um, through through the honest pursuit of truth, truly. Mm-hmm. The other thing that it makes me think of, and this is more not about the philosophical relevance of the method, but his specific implementation to it, is never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. You know, hmm. part of the Socratic mm-hmm. method, which which of course is kind of a a cross examination trial lawyer adage, right? To only only ask the right questions. It's the the prevailing cases. The glove, uh, right? Does the glove fit? Right. Well, you didn't know the answer to that question. It was a huge mistake, and your the prosecution's evidence hinged on it, right? So, mm. at any rate, uh, th- that that springs to mind, and of course, even even at his death, you know, he you can you can read the dialectic that he was conducting there, the court that he was holding there. And he right. infuriated them even then. Right. So yeah, maybe Hunter, we can run through, and these aren't the, there's not a hard science to these five stages, but this is one taxonomy of the steps and procedures for using the Socratic method, especially with another person that Socrates employed. Maybe we can go through these and give some analogs both to maybe some of his work, if you can pull it out of your well-read brain. And I maybe we can also identify some, some analogs to ways that you could conduct your own discussions and or think for yourself. And yeah, uh, I love it. Fade on into this good night. So there are the, the fade on is a dialogue of Socrates. So that's kind of funny. See, look at that. And that may not be the that may not be the proper pronunciation, but it's P H A E D O N. What do you want me to do? I don't you know, no, Hunter. I don't know. Okay, I'm thank you. About as Greek as spaghetti. 
<laughs> which means I could be confused for Greek food if you were standing far enough away. And covered in butter. And co- right. So <laughs> the first step of, of the Socratic method as used by Socrates is one of my favorites, and it's the Elenchus. And this is where he would give the invitation for the interlocutor to right. to give a discussion or give an opinion on a subject. And Socrates did this with what is literally called Socratic irony today. I think actually Kierkegaard formalized the definition of Socratic irony. But it allowed uh, it allowed the other party, the questioned party, to hold court. And so he would accomplish this by usually being disingenuous. So he would tell people, you know, oh, well, it's simply essential that I become your pupil, right? You have so much to teach me. Right. And he would butter right. these people up, and and he would define and share their credentials to give them a platform from which to make a statement he could destroy. Yep. And it's honestly pretty funny. Yeah, I think that's also the thing that's always the tension in this, because A we have everything that we know about Socrates from Plato because Socrates didn't write anything down. Plato wrote everything down. So how much is the character that you're reading is a question. But then second is how much was Socrates like really buying into the whole Delphi thing and really was going hard to disprove it. Yeah. And you know what I mean? And so it's like, it's this weird thing where it's like, okay, are you just pulling everybody's chain or are you being sincere? And it's never quite clear because it's, it's always seeming like it's on the other side of the fence. If that sort of makes sense. It certainly is curious when he coined, when he himself came to the realization that the thing that made him wisest was that he didn't purport to be wise. Yes. And yes, it definitely through his writings, you could see that perhaps that happened way before he let on that it had happened. Right. Because he, exactly. There's a, there's a real, disingenuous streak in him to go and praise all of these people and then summarily decimate their arguments. So sure. No doubt about it. Anyhow, but that's the first part. And let's talk about how that's used today because you know, a lot of times we have uh, debates among, you know, uh, some, some more professionally geared debates or some informal debates, you know, out at a restaurant or whatever you might be doing uh, with family. You might have a debate. One of the ways to win a debate if that's your goal and it's not always a bad goal especially in a public forum is to is to not take the first move you know there's something there's something and and this is different from a constructive and a destructive a destructive conversation and a lot of arguments are actually super constructive because it's two people trying to work through the definitions that they disagree about at the end, hopefully, they can center around some truth that they agree on. So a lot of de- a lot of arguments are really constructive. The flip side to that, though, is that some debates are destructive intentionally. I mean, I think about Ben right. Shapiro debating Chank Uyghur at Politicon a couple years ago. That was a purposefully destructive debate. The point was to make Chank look like a fool in front of a big audience. Because right. you're not going to change Chank's mind, at least not in that setting. And it, definitely not right. if your name is Ben Shapiro. But it is useful to make other people feel stupid for agreeing with Chank, right? right? So there are times to have both types of arguments. 
one of the things that's useful about an Olenkis, if you will, or an invitation, ironic invitation in a debate setting is that you can allow the other person to make a claim that you can dismantle because it's way easier and you've experienced this yourself even if it's oh i really like that movie it's way easier for someone to come around behind you and say that movie is trash well they would have never even said that that movie was trash in the first place you know one person had a constructive thought and the other one had a destructive thought so uh, presenting the invitation is very useful as a debate tactic the other side to that is having a certain amount of respect when you start a conversation a constructive debate let's say can give you ammunition later to allow the person, it can give you the the platform from which to allow the other person to come to your point of view. And, and what I mean by that is if I start out the conversation by respecting you and your intelligence and your credentials, etc. Later, when I say you're wrong about this, I'm not coming from a place of you're an idiot and everyone you know is an idiot and everyone you ever will know is, you know, there's not right. this this bombing of Dresden, right? And you allow someone to say, Hey, you've got a, you've got crumbs on your shirt instead of you're not wearing a shirt at all. Right. 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 So, and it can make it, yeah, it can make it easier for people to come to your side. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely, I mean, one thing's for certain Socrates was picking the fights. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and he was, it wasn't people coming up to him and asking questions. And even when they did, he was very good at making sure he asked them the questions. Right. Right. So you might want to have the debate with me, but I will set the ground rule or I will set the field that will, it'll take place upon. And that was part know? of his game. Anyhow, this, this endlessly reflexive, I'll never right. actually make a statement. Cause my point is to point out that people that make statements are dumb, that certainty itself might be the dumbest thing of all time. So like it, it was, right. it was part of his game, but it also, is exceptionally annoying. So yeah, I feel like the best, the best, the best, and we we might talk about this one again. But the best, I guess, I don't know if dialogue's the right word, but the Republic, I feel like, captures that idea the best. Where it's like, was the point really to make the point, or was the point just to basically show it's really very very difficult to make a point? Right, you it's know incredibly I mean? difficult. And so, Right, and the and you read the Republic, and it it has that flair to it. I think, at least for me, anyway. I um, no, I agree, and and you know that's it's interesting because Socrates wasn't one of these people who believed that knowledge was unattainable, but he actually believed accepting your own ignorance was the first step to obtaining true knowledge, and he wasn't in yes. agreement with a lot of Grecians at that point in time. Um, there were some Grecians who thought they had knowledge and there were some Grecians who thought that knowledge itself didn't exist. And so it's interesting that he took this, he, he integrated both of those ideas together and it truly became greater than the sum of the parts, I think. So that's true. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So step two, after the invitation, he would identify a claim and then he would also attempt to determine whether or not he thought the claim was fallacious. So after I invite you to, give your point of view on a given question, then I would say, let me clarify your point of view by asking some agreeing statements. You know, for instance, in the, in the, these are the most hysterical part to me of the, uh, of the 
Socrates stuff because he'll ask like 30 questions and I guess the logic is still good but some of it just is craziness right. like to, to the modern reader but it's it's pretty hysterical but it, anyway it keep going. does seem occasionally like he won by just purely perplexing people you know um, <laughs> yeah they were like yeah I guess that's exact my rit- heart rhythm is exactly like a bubbling brook sure right okay next <laughs> you know whatever it is so but you do this you do this in your arguments I guarantee it everybody does this especially when you think that you've i'm sorry hunter is lord vader approaching yeah actually my father was calling me that's pretty funny (laughs) that is that is quite funny um yeah anyway tell him that you can't work together to rule the dark side right now uh anyhow the the clarifications at their basis form looks something like this and you do this especially when you know you can take the other argument to task you go so let me get this straight you think that you know all all friction in the west is based on power structure you know if you're arguing with someone with critical theory that's a good thing to say because if they agree to that you can use that as a weapon later right you right. you start to wall in the opponent's claim by asking clarifying questions and making sure that you staple them down at the beginning before you do the big reveal that this is what we're arguing about. But I thought about. you said... Right. And, right. and the way that Socrates would do this, he would he would actually talk, use it in... He would, he would do this in a very agreeable manner. Like, haven't we said that, yep. you know, for instance, in what I was saying earlier, that what the gods love is holiness. Yes. And have we not also said that what the gods hate is unholiness? Right? So you start to you start to solidify the statements of the interlocutor with very usable modular claims. So yep. it's a it's a dissection and a clarification. If that makes sense. Yes, it does. I, I'm following you perfectly. I, he does like a really good job of um, basically building on the body of knowledge and then returning to that body of knowledge and making everybody agree to it and then updating it throughout the argument. So after you've identified and deconstructed the claim, or Socrates had identified and deconstructed the claim, he would move on to what could be considered step three, which would be the mitis or matis. It goes by a couple different... Uh, names and pronunciations, or it's also referred to as midwifery. And so this is where you convince your opponent to agree to additional points in your argument so that you can start to defeat them. Um, and it's actually the the clarifications that you make here or the, or the statements that you make here that allow you to go back and disprove the initial claim. And so what you do is you take the initial statements, those little usable tools that you gain from step two, and you build off of them. So you say, well, if you believe this, then certainly you believe this. And you can do it in a very logical, typically additive conjunctive way. You've done a really good job of showing one of these. Don't we know that the gods uh, love holiness? Right, and then the one that goes right after this is, so then we can all agree that the gods don't love unholiness, right, or hate unholiness, right? Right. It's a very easy, like, next logical step. You can use that then to get to the argument further down the line, which is, well, the gods have different ideas what is holy, right? Right. So, there you go. Keep going. And Socrates keeps building on this until he gets them to agree that some gods hate and love 
the same thing, right? That's the final stage of the midwifery there. After he's added enough of these statements on top of each other, he gets to the point where I'm going to make you agree to the thing that was in my mind in stage two. When I was identifying your claim and determining whether or not I thought it was fallacious, I've determined why I thought it was fallacious, and now I've walked you all the way there, agreeing with you step by step, right? And the, the key to this, and this is kind of why I brought up earlier, you don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. The key to being able to employ the Socratic method usefully is being able to hear a claim and then knowing how you're going to disprove that claim before you start clarifying and midwifing, right? That's part of the key right. is you got to have a destination in mind. And so one, one thing to do when you're arguing with an opponent is to preempt their claims, preempt the claims that you expect them to make and know where you want to drive those issues. The way to do this to yourself is vastly more complicated. However, you it's basically about strongmanning your opposition, which is a difficult tactic, it's, but you have to be good at it if you're ever going to be a good interpersonal debater, intrapersonal notwithstanding. But what you want to do is to distance yourself from your original claims and determine what the best argument against them might be. So instead of instead of straw manning an argument, you strongman an argument. How best right. might I go about defeating this? And that might give you a claim that you can use internally to see if you can then make logical additive statements to to reach the objection that you might find. So there's a skip that happens in one of the party's brains while you're going through the Midas step three. Something like that. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things, too, where this to me, like when I'm thinking in my own brain is like, what are the shortcuts that I want to take in this thought? Because it's it's attractive to me. And how can I how can I short circuit those? Right. right. Like, that's kind of what I want to think through. Like, where are the, where are my biases that I'm not going to look through here? Um, it's also one thing to do is like, what are the things I already know and believe that I can use to kind of do some of the quick work here mm -hmm. you know like what can what can get me to the next next stage of this um so i can ask myself better questions about this as i'm going along through this idea absolutely um, so yeah. the way i've used that in my own thought process hunter is i call it putting my nickel down and i've it's been so useful to me that now i make other people do it when i have conversations with them and this is what i mean mm -hmm. it's putting your money down on the table and it's saying what would need to be proven to me to make me abandon this belief and sure. if you have beliefs that don't include that, one of two things I believe is true of those beliefs. One, you hold them for reasons that are that transcend simply the logical. And that doesn't mean that they're bad ideas necessarily. Um, I, I reserve that mostly for religious ideas. Um, and actually, logic can empower the reason that you might exempt them from that that disprovability simply right. being that if they are truly religious precepts then what on earth might just be able to disprove them right so that's one the second is that they're weak ideas like even if you have the right idea and you can't determine what would push you off of that idea it's weak in your care 
you're not an effective defender of that idea. And so I like that a lot. One of the ways to to start with your own internal Midas is to is to make an agreement with yourself that if this portion of my structure isn't true, or if someone is able to prove to me this, or if I'm able to prove to myself X, then I'll abandon Y. Because they can't exist in you know, they can't exist contemporaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or or the burden of proof is too much for me to 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 do the lifting for the idea. Absolutely. Whatever that is. Great way to put it. So that's step three. Probably the most important of the steps. Step four is the big reveal, if you will. It's the prestige. It's where it's where you then and it's really the only time that Socrates stops asking questions. It's when he says, okay, now that you've agreed to some of my midwifery, I'm going to show you now how that contradicts your initial claim. So in, right. in the in the example we've been using as we go along, if if the gods hate and love the same object, then one object can be both godly and ungodly. And that should be impossible because logically something cannot be both of the gods and not of the gods. That's why you don't believe in polytheism, Chris. Right. It just it's <laughs> it's a trashy, complicated, messy son of a gun. So just get rid of it. Yes, it is. Yeah. And the last stage is aporia. Um, and this is where you're left after you employ the Socratic method. And it actually means in in simple terms a state of ignorance because you haven't really necessarily found the truth what you've done is you've left yourself in a confused state and if you're socrates it's a confused state that you were in before you began the process however now you know one more wrong answer this is thomas edison's i know a thousand ways not to make a light bulb right right and yeah it's it's a destructive or an eliminative task or state, but it's one that actually leads to truth. It leads to the construction of something useful. And so it's it's this idea that this one game played correctly might not might not be sufficient to enlighten those involved, but by being systematic in your employment of playing games over a course with good intentions and with seeking the truth in mind you may find it right it's this it's this concept that you can't do this at once in a vacuum and expect to be better off it's really a a way of thinking and not just not simply a tool yeah and it's one of those things too it's like well you did it once now you've done it five times you know a lot more about this than you did before okay you've done it a hundred times you basically have what you need you know what i mean like maybe you don't understand everything but you've got enough of the picture so that you're moving much more closer to the truth than before um you know this is this is something you know every time you try to learn something new uh, you know, habit formation is really hard and difficult, gets easier and easier over time, and then eventually becomes something you can't even explain to people how it is you do it. And your thoughts work in a similar way, too. Um, the more and more you struggle with the idea, except 
the only thing different there is that you keep the map more than likely. Sure. Uh, even if, even, uh, even, you know, when, uh, you start to lose some of that crystallized intelligence. Um, but yeah. And I think the thing to remember with yourself is when you're doing this is, you know, having that argument with yourself is quite different than having the debate you want to win with someone else. Um, the main idea there being that you want to simply try, as Christopher said at the beginning, which is the right way to think about it, is to throw all the crowbars underneath the idea, right? And just keep pressing down until something gives or the idea sticks, mm -hmm. you know? And I think the more and more you practice um, having conversations with yourself like that, um, the, the easier that becomes, I, you know, for me, a lot of times when I think I have to pace and I just talk out loud to myself. Um, and that's not necessarily something you can do in front of a lot of people, but, right. um, and, and we it's try one and way... keep Hunter's lithium prescription filled, although from time to time yeah. it lapses, not, you know, necessarily. Right. But I can get some work done doing that. It's also like, I think one of the reasons why people do their thinking in the shower is because it's a quiet place where no one else is around where they can actually start begin some of that self dialogue with themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it, there's not enough to keep you entertained essentially, or rather distracted. The same um, reason that I tend to pray on the toilet. Oh no, not precisely the same reason. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I think it, I think it's a good skill to practice. I think it's hard um, I think you have to really, really see yourself as, unless it comes naturally to you, you have to see yourself as both the question asker and the answerer of questions. And if you have to do both of those at the same time, and you kind of got to trick yourself that you're not necessarily two people, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, you've got to just be able to willing to think like, no, I'm kind of just trying to pick this idea apart. Um, but yeah, it's two different skills, right? One is the thinking side of this coin and thinking side of this process. And the other one is the debate side of this process, which Socrates was obviously a master of both. Sure. I think everything you just said is, is spot on. To return in summary to the crowbar metaphor, everybody likes a beautiful monument more than they like a crowbar, right? And when you build sure. up these ideas and, and pour a foundation and take care of them and guard them and make them beautiful it's very displeasing or even distressing to see them be torn down and so people tend to reject the crowbar for that reason but if you can find a crowbar that's able to uproot some of the deepest set monuments then how valuable is that crowbar right that's a good way to think about it uh, so anyway, I hope you all enjoyed that. Hunter, do you have anything else to, to add to the Socratic method? Yeah, don't be a, don't practice sophistry, which is basically the thing we've been accusing of Socrates in the background the whole time. Uh, sophistry is when you basically make an argument knowing that it's bad just because you want to win. That's not what That's sophistry bad. is. What am I saying? So sophistry, I'm going to read you the definition. Are you ready? Where are you reading the definition from? Google. Well, you can't rely oh, on Google. I know what you're doing. <laughs> I know what you're doing. So that's good. That's why you don't do that crap, because it makes your brother kill you. Um, so anyway. 
So uh, yeah, it, it definitely feels like Socrates is doing that every once in a while, no doubt. And whether he is or not is something that we can't, we won't ever be able to know because we're a little distracted from it. Chewbacca's here. <laughs> cool. My gosh, your Star Wars sounds are incredible. Uh, yeah. They far outshine your lack of professionalism in not turning your ringer yeah. off before the show. Hunter's going to load his Whoops. pistol. I'm going to file for a restraining order, and you. Listener, are going to think better, argue better, make yourself stronger, make the people around you stronger. And what better way to make yourself stronger than to go right now to carlcoin.com slash FNX, FNXfit.com, Hunter. The body of Adonis and the mind of Socrates, one can do no better. Go there, use checkout code carlpooling to belay yourself and weight yourself down with a cacophony of tinctures and ointments, powders, and prescriptions to make yourself into the perfect physical form that you always knew you could obtain. 2021 is just around the corner as our New Year's resolutions. Make one of yours not to be such a fat, dumb, reprehensible slob and get in shape. Use the supplements over at FNX Fit to help. Use checkout code CARLPOOLING for 15% off. That. FNX Fit wants you to know that if you begin using their supplements today... Within one year, you too can return back to your homeland in Greece, uh, string up the bow, shoot your arrow through 12 axe heads, and castrate your wife's suitors, just like Odysseus did. Um, so you have that to look forward to, I guess. Castrate some suitors. FNXFit.com yeah. <laughs> Well, that's been God. the show. We are Carl Pooling. You are in the back seat. Thanks for joining us yet again. Let's do it again, same time, same place next week, Wednesday mornings. I'm Chris. You can find me on socials at ChrisXCarl. He's been Hunter. You can find him online at EmotionalCarl. Email the show at carlpooling at gmail.com. Find all of our episodes, relevant links, and contact information at carlpooling.com. Rate, review us on your podcatcher of choice, but really just Apple Podcasts. Thank you for those that have done so since we have broadcast last we see you uh can't wait to hear back from you guys and hear how useful the socratic method has been in your life and i'm sure some of you know more about it than we do so i invite you come <laughs> educate us teach us what yeah. you know about the socratic method for it is essential that hunter and i become your pupil in the form of an email you who so eloquently can layer argument and logical structure one atop the other like a delicious intellectual tiramisu we simply demand Ooh. and desire your intercourse and not in the modern way that we use that word unless Thank no you. no not in the modern Thank way you. at all no I shouldn't Not hit on the, the modern audience. way. Because um, if I did, Hunter, if I did no, start any kind gosh, of relationship, carnal with the audience, then to be safe, both of us would need to get tested. Castrate their suitors. Castrate their suitors. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That could be the new tagline. I'm okay with that. <laughs> oh, man. You've got to get tested. <laughs>